The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. We'll go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Probably one of the most famous of all of Paul's writings is right here. Love is patient. Love is kind. Oh, verse 4, sorry. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Well, we have been in 1 Corinthians 13 for a little while now. And the apostle is giving us really a description of love. He's not not giving us some sort of theological definition. He's giving us a description of what love does and what love does not do. And we've looked at love is patient, we've looked at love is kind, we looked at that love is not jealous. Paul's actually going to give eight negatives of what love is not, right? It is not jealous, it does not brag, that was the last one we looked at. Tonight we're going to get to love is not arrogant and does not act unbecomingly. And uh, just by way of reminder, all of these in the original text are verbs. So they're, descri- they're, they're action words. They are descriptive of action. And, uh, and so Paul says, love is not uh, proud. Um, the word for pride is, um, it's actually a, sort of a funny word. It means to be blown up or to be puffed up, we draw from that conceited, inflated, proud, haughty, right? And so here's this, uh, this word, it's, um, uh, the, the Greek word is fusiao, and um, the idea is to be, you're, you're inflated, okay? Uh, Anthony Thistleton says, inflated with your own importance. Okay. Uh, J.B. Phillips, in his famous paraphrase, love does not cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. Okay. And we, this, uh, this brings us to, to the whole issue of pride. Paul says explicitly, love is not proud. It's not puffed up. It's not inflated. And so when we think about pride, um, Robert Rayburn says pride is the idolatry of the self. It's a good definition. Matthew Henry, pride makes a god of self. But perhaps the most stinging is Jonathan Edwards. Pride is the worst viper that is in the heart. Okay, so newsflash, you have a viper that lives inside of your heart named pride. 
Edward says, it is the first sin that ever entered into the universe. And think about that. That is it's a stunning thing, right? It's not, uh, it's not lust. It's not uh, envy. It was pride. It's the first sin that entered into the universe, and it lies lowest of all in the foundation of the whole building of sin and is the most secret, deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways of working of any lusts whatsoever. And so here's this viper that's in our heart, and it is secret, it's deceitful, and it's unsearchable in the way that it works. In other words, we don't see our pride. Pride is one of the the hardest things for us to identify. There it is, always there, always lurking, absolutely poisonous. And then Edwards says, it is ready to mix with everything. So you know what that means. Even your humility is mixed with pride. Your good works are mixed with pride. Your self-effacement is mixed with pride. Then Edward says, nothing is so hateful to God and contrary to the spirit of the gospel or of so dangerous consequence. And there's no one sin that does so much let in the devil into the hearts of the saints and exposes them to his delusions. So here's here's the bottom line is that that pride is, is far more present, far more pervasive, far more dangerous than any of us think. There is is more pride in in each one of us than any of us know. I've commented before that pride is one of those sins that we're, we're ready to admit to as long as we're only admitting to what everybody else should admit to. You follow me? I I know that I'm proud. But y'all are too. Which means that my own view of my own pride says that my pride really is not probably as bad as yours. I mean, I know I'm proud, but I'm not as proud as you. You see how delusional that is, right? By the way, the, the, the fundamental problem with that perspective is that it lacks all humility, <laughs> right? The minute I go, okay, well, I know I'm proud, but man, Jason is unbearable. Right? The minute I go, the minute I go that way, right? Start thinking about other people. Right? I don't think you're proud, but I mean I know you're proud, but I don't think you're proud. All right. So here's here's an incredibly telling point in the New Testament. There's seven times where this word fusiao is used in the New Testament. All of them by Paul. And six out of the seven are in 1 Corinthians. There's one noun form 
that's used in 2 Corinthians. So you kind of get the point, right? I mean, here's Paul, and he's dealing with pride, and, and, and as he's dealing with pride, he, of course, is dealing primarily with the Corinthians. So the proud person or the inflated person is, is the one whose attention is, is always focused on himself, the proud person is inflated, but he's inflated with, with himself. He, we, we have an expression, and it's actually pretty apt for the word, and that is we say that a person is full of himself. Right? A person just full of himself. You know, this person, they're always, you know, they're always the topic of their own conversation. They're the hero of their own story. And the proud person is a person who who may be driven by sort of this um this this strong outward display of self absorption right they're the they're the proverbial bragger right they're they're the proverbial boaster that this person exudes pride right you have you have that kind of proud person but you also have people that are incredibly proud that have the appearance of of self-effacement. We'll talk about that in a little bit. That's how insidious pride is. It doesn't just look like one thing. It looks like lots of different things. So I, I've I've gone over these before a few years ago, but let me just talk about uh, nine characteristics of of pride. And the first, and this is this should be an obvious one, is it's the sin of the devil himself, right? So Paul, in in writing First uh, Timothy chapter three, is given the um, qualifications for elder, and he says, "Not a new convert, so that he will not become." conceited, puffed up, and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. So, in a sense, um, pride is is Satan's sin. Some people think that uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28... Uh, are references to the fall of Satan or the fall of Lucifer. I think that's very possible. And uh, the the common denominator in those two passages describing the fall uh, in in uh, Isaiah 14 of the, the king of Babylon and then in Ezekiel 28, the king of Tyre, uh, is, is this self-elevation. It's pride. Right? I, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to be like the Most High. And so, so pride, when Edward said that pride was the first sin in the universe, he wasn't thinking of Adam and Eve, he's thinking of Satan. And so, so here's, here's, here's the reality. We are never more like the Lord Jesus when we are humble, and we're never more like the devil than when we're proud. divisive. Pride is one of these divisive sins. And so 
Paul says to the Galatians in in 5.26, he says, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So in other words, the way that that pride works is is that uh, as a person elevates themselves in their own mind, in their own heart, they often can become... um, a divisive kind of person because they know better than anybody else. They know they have the most wisdom, they have, they have the best teachers, they read the best books, uh, you know, and, and so there is a divisiveness with the proud. So, and again, th- think about the way, so love is not proud. So what Paul is saying, if you want to put it positively, love exudes humility. Right, So, are humble people typically divisive people? Humble people are not divisive people because humble people are constantly trying to figure out how to put the other person ahead of themselves. That usually does not lead to divisiveness. Okay. Who is it that is, that is divisive It's the contentious person. Who is it that's the contentious person? The proud person who always thinks that they're the one that's right. Number three, the proud person resists being taught. There's a whole lot that kind of flows out of this. Um, uh, I should have brought my list over the years. I uh, keep certain lists for the Proverbs. Um, so I'll read to the Proverbs and look for certain things and keep, you know. And so I have, uh, are you teachable? And it has all of the teachable passages in the Proverbs. Well, guess who's not teachable? The proud and the fool. <laughs> They're the ones that are not teachable. But what does it mean to be teachable? Well, um, the proud person is not teachable, and therefore the proud person uh, always resists correction. In fact, you try to correct a proud person, you will pay for it. The proud resists uh, rebuke. It re- well, there, there's something about this that, that makes sense, and that is that the proud resists being taught and resists correction because it resists authority. The proud hate any form of criticism and under not being taught, um, a proud person does not seek counsel. You know why a proud person never seeks counsel? Who can tell me anything? I've got this. I've got it figured out. I've got it handled. And so the proud person never goes and asks anybody for any advice or any counsel, never seeks counsel, and certainly doesn't listen to counsel. Now, that doesn't mean that the proud person just will, you know, punch a square in the face. The proud person may have enough decorum that they sit there and listen to you with a smile and say, oh, thank you very much, all the while thinking, you're an idiot, and then they leave.
very long time ago. Ariel and I have a, a little um, ritual that we do when we know somebody that's going to be going off to Bible college or seminary. Ariel and I will sit down with the the guy and his wife or girlfriend and we'll talk to them about some of the lessons that we learned, uh, some of the hard lessons that we learned going through seminary and the hard lessons that, that, that I learned. And we take this couple out to breakfast and Ariel's talking about um, what it's like to be a pastor's wife and and uh, you 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 share your husband, and you realize that that um, that he's not uh, exclusively yours in the way that other husbands are exclusively their wives. They you you get your husband taken away for this or that, and and uh, it's part of the calling, and uh, and it's you know at times. It can be a challenge, but you embrace it because this is what God has made you. And the gal's sitting there, and she's looking at Ariel, and she's got this, basically this look like, um, um, well, I don't really think you know what you're talking about. And, of course, Ariel, being Ariel, said, I perceive from the look on your face that you don't think I know what I'm talking about. And she says, well, that may be how you guys do things. But we're going to do things differently. Well, they hadn't done anything yet. So, you know. And a proud person just doesn't think that they can learn anything from anybody. Doesn't matter that somebody else has gone through the, the experience that they're about to go through. Doesn't matter. Because the proud person's constantly looking down on everybody else, and so there's really, there's nothing to learn. Next, pride demands to be recognized and praised. The the proud person thrives on recognition. So the proud person absolutely hates serving behind the scenes, right? The proud person doesn't want to set up chairs or clean tables because there's 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 no accolades for that. Right? The proud person does what he or she does not because it's an act of service, but because it gives them a platform of recognition. When a proud person's not recognized, you usually sense it right away. Number five, the proud resents trials. Proud people are not only ungrateful, typically, but the proud person resents the hardships and trials of life. And the proud person basically uh, thinks that he or she deserves better than what they're getting. So some of you remember Ernie Keenel, and you'd say to Ernie, how are you doing? And Ernie would always answer the same way. 
And, and the thing was is that he meant it with all of his heart, and that was uh, better than I deserve, right? Well, the proud person never thinks he's quite getting what he deserves. And so when hardships and trial come, the proud person resents them as if somehow God isn't treating them according to the way they deserve. Number six, proud people treat others with harshness. Of course, typically in the name of being truthful. So proud people don't like to be rebuked, but they they love to rebuke. The proud person is the proud person is 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 gifted at correcting people. And they do it in a way where they take absolutely no consideration of others. They never think about uh, if I say this in front of this person or say this to this person, how will this, this affect that person? That never registers with the proud. The proud just says what they want to say. And there's never ever any consideration of, can I say this gentler? Can I say this wiser? Um, they're just always correcting. They look at it as if they have been appointed by God Almighty to go around making sure that everybody is corrected. You ever met anybody like that? You can't even have a conversation with them because halfway through every sentence, they're correcting something that you're saying. This is the gift of the proud. The proud boasts and glories in self. Boy, I was uh, thinking of Jason's uh, Sunday school lessons from uh, on the Christian and the Internet. And um, <laughs> social media is like fuel for pride. Right? What's one of the most common pictures? Ray takes them all the time. Selfies, okay? (laughs) I've seen Ray's selfies. Pride just glories in self. So pride's always um, bragging about, you know, how many books I've read, uh, how many likes I have. Um, You can tell a proud person on social media because... They're ready to go to war with anybody for any contrary comment. If you feel like you always have to correct people and you get on social media, guess what can become a full-time job? Number eight, pride can look like self-pity. So here's, here's the thing is, you know, you might be thinking, oh, well, I'm not a proud person. I am awful. I am a self-loathing worm. I, 
I am a rotten sinner. I am no good. I am unworthy. I am miserable. I am, I am, I am. Oh, have you noticed some common denominator in each one of these sentences, right? So the, the self-pity can be one of these, um, one of these um, uh, forms of pride that doesn't ar- uh, initially strike us, right? So... Um, the person who is always in sort of a, a self-loathing state can actually be a person who is incredibly proud. They're just proud of their misery. I'm always a little hesitant to tell Stories, because you might be thinking, well, who would who that was? So many years ago, I there was a, there was a situation, and I went up to this person, and I I was trying to be as gentle as I could be, and I said, you know, you can't really do that, you know, during church. And I'm terrible. I'm so sorry. I'm rotten. I'm, I can't. And just went on and on about how terrible she was. And I said, well, don't forget you're proud too. (laughs) John Piper says, the reason self-pity does not look like pride is that it appears to be so needy. But the need arises from a wounded ego. It doesn't come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. By the way, that sentence is worth its weight in gold. It doesn't come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. It is the response of unapplauded pride. Pride also opposes God's grace, and loves works. You know what sin goes hand in hand with pride? Self-righteousness. In fact, we get to the self-righteous person in Romans chapter 2. I can just tell you ahead of time, this is advance warning. It will be painful. And if I notice that you miss it intentionally, I'll send it to you. Or show up to your house and preach it to you, all right? Um, Self-righteousness goes hand in hand with pride. And and so here's here's the way that that it works. So uh, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, notice the way this works. Not of works, lest, what? Anyone should boast. The the proud person loves their works. The proud person never never thinks in terms of, of grace that's outside of them that they need. The proud person's always thinking of, of how good they are and what their abilities are and the works that they do. And so Paul says, Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, What do you have 
that you did not receive. So what, what is, by the way, what, what is the answer to that? Nothing. What do you have that you didn't receive? Nothing. Then Paul says, and if you received it as a gift, why do you boast as if you didn't? So whether it's whether it's grace or, or, or a gifts or works or whatever the case, the proud person just revels and marvels at their own ability to do. I've been thinking about the idea of, of the, the perfectionist. The perfectionist. I don't mean somebody that's committed to doing a good job. I'm talking about a person who's a perfectionist. They they have a standard that they they hold themselves up to. By the way, they hold everybody else up to it too. The perfectionist is the quintessential proud person. Oh, now I know what you're thinking. Okay, you've gone from preaching to meddling now, right? No, perfectionists create a law unto themselves, and it is in keeping that law that they gain their own sense of self-worth. And it's pride. The perfectionist loves the idea of having fulfilled some standard. Now, it's not God's standard. It's self-standard. And it's pride that throbs in the heart. So if you're a perfectionist, you know what goes hand in hand with perfectionism? Self-righteousness. You know what the handmaiden of self-righteousness is? Pride. See, all these things are so terribly entangled, right? This is, this, is why you can ha- this is why you can be a person who knows, uh, knows the Bible, knows lots and lots and lots of verses, maybe even, even reads lots of good books, have a lot of knowledge, and yet be a perfectionist and be an insufferable person to be around because you're deluded by your own sense of perfectionism. You You wouldn't be the theological perfectionist, just a pragmatic one. You'd never say, I've been holy and totally completely sanctified. But the proud person says, you know, I actually live by a much higher and better standard than other people. It is subtle and it's dangerous. One time after service had a guy come up to me and um, he was all worked up 
And he says, answer me a question. Answer me a question. He says, I look around in this church and I see people and they, they, they don't homeschool their kids and they let their kids eat candy and watch cartoons and their kids are turning out better than ours and we, we give them vitamins and cook healthy and make them eat their vegetables and never let them watch TV. And well, you, you, you understand the, the, the fundamental problem, right? We have a standard that's far superior to everybody else's. We should be producing a far better product. His problem at that point was despair because his family was falling apart. Maybe just give him a Snickers, everything would be okay. Let him watch Porky the Pig or Bugs Bunny. It's subtle, it's insidious, it's dangerous. We have to watch out for it. The heart of works, says Piper, gets satisfaction from the ego boost of accomplishing something in its own power. In all of this, the basic satisfaction of the works orientation is the savor of being an assertive, autonomous, and if possible, triumphant self. So why is love not inflated with self? Well, it should be obvious to us, and that is the proud can never selflessly love God or others, let alone serve. Proud people can put on a show. They can put on a good display of being a lover of God or a servant, but it can never actually be real. Love loves God for God's sake, as it were. Love loves others for others' sake. Pride loves God and others for self's sake. So the person who is obsessed with self can never demonstrate the spirit of Christian love because they're never genuinely concerned enough about the welfare of anybody else, and so they're not going to put anybody else above themselves. It's just like it's impossible. For a person who is absolutely obsessed and inflated with self, they can never genuinely put somebody else in front of themselves. It's it's like trying to send a a, a turkey to eagle school. They're not going to fly. There needs to be a transformation of heart. The proud person can never serve selflessly just for the sake of love of, of another person because the proud person is constantly, you see me? You recognize me? You see what I'm doing? And so love just doesn't do that. Pride and arrogance is really the sort of the ugly shoot of the root of selfishness. Is contrary to the spirit of Christian love. So Robert Murray McShane says, Oh, for true unfeigned humility, I know I have cause to be humble, and yet I do not know one half of that cause. I know I am proud, and yet I do not know the half of that pride. 
How do you kill pride? That's the question, right? Maybe a better question would be, how do we learn how to love? Okay, we're going to do one more. Love does not act unbecomingly. By the way, these these are connected to some degree. So uh, the King James, uh, how, uh, how does the King James do this? You remember, love, love does not, uh, charity doth not. It's close to the New American Standard. I can't. I can't exactly remember how that goes. Um, now I wish. Uh, uh, oh, uh, charity does not unseemingly. Is that unseeming? Yeah, I mean, un, unseemingly. Yeah. So New American Standard is is actually not too much better. It does not act unbecomingly. We don't. We usually use the word unbecoming much anymore. Uh, the, the word itself is fascinating because the word it has this has this broad, broad range, right? So this word can mean to behave disgracefully, dishonorably, indecently, okay? uh, to act in defiance of social moral standards with the resulting disgrace, embarrassment, and shame. So ESV and, and NET say love is not rude. And that's that's okay. That's okay. But it's not exactly the same as um, indecent, right? Inappropriate. Okay. So uh, NIV love does not dishonor others. Okay. That's that's actually okay. Um, Christian Standard Bible does not act improperly. Um, so whatever the case, by the way, the word is used in uh, in the Septuagint, but its use in the Septuagint is just as broad. So in uh, Leviticus 25, you don't uh, uh, whip somebody more than 39 times so that he will not be disgraced in front of his brethren. It's always puzzled me as if like one more is going to be like, oh yeah, now that, what a loser, right? Um, there are passages, for instance, in Ezekiel 16 where, the, where it, it, this word is used and it is used in a uh, indecent way. Okay? And indecent, that has connotations for us in English, doesn't it? Indecent. Typically, because we attach it with other words and then turn that into a crime. Okay? Indecent exposure, right? So anything that's indecent probably isn't very good. It's used that way in Ezekiel. Um, Paul does use the word another time in 1 Corinthians 7 in that very difficult passage where it says, uh, so if a man is acting indecently towards his betrothed in, in 736, all right? So, so here's, here's the, the problem. You've got this word that's kind of a sort of a big word uh, in terms of possibility. And on the one hand, it could be uh, rude. But, I mean, to me, rude is, you know, like, you know, so we were in California. I, I can't believe how rude Californians are. It's amazing. And... Uh, so I, I hold the door. I hold the door open for this this older guy, and he just walks right right through. 
you know, and I'm, I'm standing there. I got all my luggage, and I'm holding the door open for him, and he doesn't have anything. He just walks by, and uh, look at Ariel. I said, well, I guess they don't say thank you in California. Okay. Now, um, I hope so. <laughs> it's not as if my voice doesn't carry. <laughs> but uh, so, you know, so I think, well, that was rude. But I wouldn't have said, well, that was quite indecent. I wouldn't have said, uh, oh, the impropriety is rude, right? So rude kind of has, rude can kind of be on the minimal end of this kind of behavior, right? You see what I'm saying? On the other end, you have more, uh, uh, so Thistleton does not behave, I like this, ill-mannered impropriety. Thistleton is British, so that's why it's ill-mannered impropriety, all right? And uh, I, I like that definition. So here in the Corinthian context, this, this particular one makes tremendous sense. I don't remember where I got this, but uh, love does not elbow its way into conversations, worship services, or public institutions in a disruptive, attention-seeking way. That's pretty good, right? Love doesn't elbow its way in. Love does not monopolize time and attention. So the implications to this particular one, love does not act unbecomingly, are probably broader than we realize because what Paul is, is saying is this idea that, that love, love seeks to demonstrate proper decorum. Love seeks to demonstrate good manners. I say, well, that's, that doesn't sound very spiritual. It's probably far more spiritual than we think. If rude behavior is unloving, then loving behavior exhibits a personal propriety in conduct, speech, and appearance. Charles Hodge says, love's whole deportment is decorous and becoming. You know, we we don't even use words like that anymore, right? Deportment. We don't use words like that anymore. Decorum or decorous, we don't use words like that anymore. Becoming, unbecoming, we don't use words like that anymore. And in fact, I would suggest to you that the reason that we don't use words like that anymore is because the concepts behind the words have slipped out of our culture. So love does not act with a personal impropriety, either in speech or in conduct or even in appearance. So um, we live in a time where, and, 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 and trust me, the, these things seep into the church. We live in a time where somehow we think we have the right 
to say what we want, when we want, to whomever we want. As if this is some inalienable right. We we think... uh, I get in trouble a little bit, I'm sure, but uh, that's okay. We think we can wear whatever we want. Whenever we want. We think that... um, Let me speak. Um, by the way, this is not just a female issue. Males and females both can be guilty. But if you're female and you dress in a way that's physically provocative, that's not love. Why? Because the lack of decorum in appearance may be the cause of stumbling to people. And we live in a time where to even bring such a thing up like that it is, in our culture, more of an indictment on um, how rotten and lustful men are, and we have totally forgotten that there is a sin of lasciviousness, which is the provocation of lust. So, love practices personal modesty. By the way, guys can do it too. I get so, I, I, I really, uh, you know, you want to just have a box of belts with you. And I could think of two, <laughs> two things to use those belts for. The second would be handing them out to guys whose pants are hanging down to their knees drives me crazy thinking didn't you buy some suspenders you go you're putting too much emphasis on uh the external appearance well here's here's another thing that we have uh just uh, amazingly forgotten and that is that the external appearance is often a reflection of what's going on in the heart We're not talking about just making sure that you take a course with mismanners. We're talking about conducting yourself with, with others in a way that, that you're not acting unbecomingly in speech, conduct, or appearance. We believe that such things as being polite are passe and that we should be able to act however we, we want. And so 
modesty, decency, respect, respect, and manners are no longer seen to be virtues. And so the Bible says that love does not act in inappropriate ways, improper ways. One commentator puts it like this, and this is so good. Love is not tactless nor tasteless. So why does love not act unbecomingly? Or why is love not rude? Because love takes other people into consideration. It's that simple, really. You just, you, you are compelled to think about others. So love is not rude because love takes into account the feelings of others. And I, I know, I, you know, I, I pay attention. I, I know that we live in this hypersensitive age where you can't even say anything anymore without somebody being offended. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the way that we, the way that we treat people if, if we never take into account their feelings, um, if we never take into account their weaknesses, their temptations, their own sense of propriety, how our actions will affect them, then we're not walking in love. You can't just say, well, that person's just a sissy. That person's just too sensitive. That person just wears their feelings on their sleeve. Love actually makes me think about another person in a way where I don't want to hurt them. Now, I got to tell you that this this is a challenge for me because, you know... I was raised with sarcastic humor. Just, I mean, I don't know that it ever comes out, but it's easy for me to be um, sarcastic with people and not mean anything by it. Ariel was not raised with sarcastic humor. Ariel wasn't raised with any humor. And so, yeah, she's totally not here to defend herself. Um, she would say, yeah, I wasn't raised with any humor. So when we first got married, I'd make jokes left and right. And she'd be like, are you serious? Are you mad at me? What do you mean by that? I'd be like, it's a joke. I'm just teasing you, right? So now, after nearly 32 years, I have her just about trained, okay? But you have to be careful, right? You have to be careful. When, when, the, when the words can come out quickly, right? When the words can come out quickly, you've got to be careful. Why? Because love does not act unbecomingly. It's not rude. Love is constantly thinking about somebody else. So Linsky says, tactlessness forgets its own place and fails to accord to others their proper dues of respect, honor, and consideration. So love takes into account the things that come out of my mouth takes into account 
my respect of others, my consideration of others. Have you ever, um, have you just ever inadvertently or maybe even intentionally just mistreated somebody because you just, you just didn't like that person? You had something, you just, you know, and you just, you kept them at arm's length and you weren't going to give them the time of day. That's not love. Period. It's not love. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't say, prove itself, prove yourself to me. Then maybe I'll give you a biscuit. Love doesn't act like that. Love actually considers others and sees others as more important than oneself. In other words, love is humble. It considers others before self. It considers how others feel. It doesn't act better or superior or treat others as if they did not matter. See what a grievous sin that is, treating somebody as if they did not matter. Now, you know there's another passage that tells us this very same kind of thing. We're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, Romans 12, 3. But we're also to look out not only for our interests. In fact, the, the, the text in Philippians 3 doesn't say, don't merely look out for it. It just says, don't look out for your own interests. But also for the interests of others. Right? Have this attitude in yourself. Have this attitude of heart in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and became a servant taking upon himself the form of a human being. This is is the great act of self-humbling by our Lord Jesus. So Jesus did that for us. And so then the question is, can't you actually just treat people well? By the way, we kind of joke around here about nice you know, oh, nice sermon. I'm like, yeah, don't tell me nice sermon. And then I'll tell you, well, you know, nice originally has its uh, etymology in the word uh, ignorant. You look quite nice today. But nice has value. Because you're just seeking to show love to other people. Letting other people know you matter. You matter. And I'm going to show you that you matter in the way that I talk to you and the way that I treat you. That's what love does. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd help us. Help us not to be proud. Help us to be humble. And help us to be kind to others. Father, we pray that 
our own hearts would be so gripped by what our Lord Jesus has done for us that we would not dare think of acting unbecomingly to somebody else. We pray for your help, Lord. Father, there is still just so much remaining corruption in our hearts. We pray that you would purify us and sanctify us. For Jesus' sake, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.